Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the psalm, and we'll read together. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods has lifted up, O Lord. The floods had lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mighty are the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness benefits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Glory to the the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The New Testament reading is from Romans. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we call by, and cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If you, I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into the heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. We give thanks for the risen Jesus. We praise you, Father, for sending the Son. We thank you, Son of God, for coming and saving us. We thank you, Spirit of God, that you are here and active among us. We pray that you would open our ears to hear your word rightly, to learn and to grow in you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. We are uh, so thankful uh, to have uh, kids uh, with us, um, and uh, hopefully parents, you've gotten sort of, as we're doing different things for children's ministry throughout uh, this summer and offering different things, but on this week, all the kids are here, and again, we're really thankful to have them here. Parents, uh, just know if your kids make a little noise, there were months where this sanctuary was very silent, and we missed that sound. So do not worry about kids um, being um, vocal. Uh, we are so thankful they're here. We really are. Believe me. So, um, But uh, some uh, children uh, may want to participate through drawing. We were doing the drawing prompt for a while, then we kind of ended as uh, more kids' ministry, but uh, we're restarting the drawing prompt. This is for all ages. There are um, drawing materials back there. Again, kids, I think, get them handed to them when they come in. But adults, if you want to get up right now and grab some drawing materials, you can. Um, No one will stare at you. Um, uh, But just know that is available for anyone. And even for some of you young or older children, children on the older end, maybe you think, I'm a little old for drawing. I'm not going to do that. I'm too cool. Just know my mom was participating in the drawing prompts. I found out this week um, she 
lives in Indiana, so she watches the service online, but she's been drawing. Um, but like many of you, she has never shared her drawings with others. So um, anyway, so I haven't seen my mom's drawings, but she has been engaging in the drawing prompts, so I encourage you to do so as well. But unlike my mom, share your drawings with us. Send a picture of them to uh, Miss Andrea. We'd love to, to see them. So the drawing prompt for today, I'm going to be looking at our gospel reading here from the, the Gospel of John. I want you to draw, if you'd like to, um, a picture of Nicodemus and Jesus meeting. Right, so, um, and we are told Nicodemus came at night. So as you draw this picture of Jesus and Nicodemus, you can sort of imagine were they outside at night? Was the moon shining down on them? Were they in front of a fire? Maybe were they inside? Was there a, an oil lamp um, there giving um, them light? But try to imagine what this conversation looked like uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. Maybe you want to uh, sort of imagine what did Nicodemus's face look like as Jesus was telling him these things. What did Jesus look like as he was sharing these truths with Nicodemus? Um, so uh, when I was in seminary many, many years ago, I uh, took a pastoral um, counseling uh, class. And in this class, our professor uh, regularly had us break up into small groups of about four or five students um, where we would share what was happening in our lives. And it was an opportunity, basically, for us as students to sort of use the counseling skills that we were hopefully learning in that class to use them in this small group. And so we would do active listening and asking good questions. Um, And the professor also shared that his hope in this small group was that in addition to it being, you know, a place to sort of practice our counseling skills, that it would also be um, an opportunity for us to just share life and to have a place of support and encouragement uh, for one another. Um, Now, at that time in my life, I was very engaged with a small group um, at my church. Um, uh, I was uh, dating uh, Molly and soon be engaged. Um, And so sort of my personal life and the places I was, you know, focusing on relationships was outside of seminary. And so I will admit that this small group that we were supposed to, again, be very vulnerable in and sharing life together, I wasn't super engaged in it. Um, And uh, one day uh, before we went to our groups, the professor said, hey, go into your groups and really be honest in your groups. This is a place to really be vulnerable. So we sat down in our group, and one of the guys shared and said, hey, I want to share something honestly. And he looked at me and he said, you haven't been very engaged in this group. I don't think you're really sharing. You don't seem to care about this group. And so confronted me about my lack of engagement. Um, and the first thing I felt was kind of bad, because um, I had to admit, you're right, I haven't been really engaged and didn't really want to change that. Um, then we were near the end of the class at that point. But the second thing I felt, and I didn't share this out loud, but I felt like, why are you getting personal? Like, this is a seminary class. Like, I didn't come to this class to have interpersonal dynamics. I just came to learn stuff. Um, and so I felt kind of put out that he made seminary personal. Now, I look back at that, I'm like, that shows some immaturity on my part um, at that time. And actually, I look back and I'm like, good for that professor of wanting us to be more than just sort of learning information, really wanting us to be personally engaged. But as I think about that moment and that sense of like, hold on a second, when did this become personal? I think sometimes maybe some of us feel that way in regard to theology, right? When we think about theology, about the truth of who God is and how God has worked and what the scriptures teach, But maybe sometimes we feel a little bit like, you know, that's great. You know, I'm a Christian. I should learn those things. But they're not really personal, right? They're just kind of these truths that are out there, right? They're the right answers on the test to make sure, you know, you're a a good Christian. But that they maybe feel disconnected from our hearts and from our lives, from our everyday experience. I think this can be especially true for the doctrine of the Trinity, 
right? We, we know the doctrine of the Trinity, right? We, we want to affirm it. We get a little nervous when we talk about the Trinity because we're always afraid we're going to say a heresy, right? I usually have someone else preach on Trinity Sunday, right? Because I'm nervous. I'm going to say something later. They'll realize, you said a heresy, you know? So, so we get nervous about the doctrine of Trinity, but it feels very sort of disconnected from us, right? Okay, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Three persons, one God, one being, um, but, that, um, uh, but again, it may feel like, well, what does that have to do with our lives? I heard, uh, I was in a meeting uh, this past week, and a theology professor was in this meeting. We were talking about different things. And at one point he said, the Trinity is the gospel. He said, it is the good news, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and when he said that, I thought, yes, that is true. But I don't think we often think that way. I don't know that we often think the Trinity is the gospel. It is the good news. So I want to think about how this doctrine of the Trinity, it's personal. It makes a difference in our lives because, of course, the Trinity, God makes a difference in our lives. And I want to consider this passage from John because I think actually in this passage from John, Nicodemus experiences a little bit what I experienced in that class where it's like all of a sudden, wait a second, you're getting personal. You know, Nicodemus came to Jesus to talk about Jesus. I want to figure out who you are. And Jesus turns it and basically says, let's talk about you. Now, let's figure out what's going on with you. Now, Jesus talks about himself as well. But note right at the beginning, he makes it personal. Right, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so if we look at this moment, um, uh, again, a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, so a very important person, a person of great authority, a person that many would find at that time to be very intimidating, right, comes to speak to Jesus. We're told that he came by night. Again, this is significant. Probably he came by night because he's nervous. Maybe who's going to see him with Jesus? Jesus is already at this point a very polarizing figure, right? Probably a lot of the Pharisees would not be happy with Nicodemus that he's, or yeah, with Nicodemus that he's coming to speak with Jesus. But when we read the Gospel of John and we read night, we know there's symbolic meaning in that as well. Night and day, darkness, light. Um, those are symbols that John uses throughout his Gospel. He uses lots of symbolism um, in his Gospel. And so we can understand this. So probably John is telling us Nicodemus is still in the dark, right? Yes, he came by night, but that night is significant in that he has not yet fully seen the light. He is a ruler of the Jews, right? He is a man of incredible knowledge, and it seems very devout. And yet there's more he needs to understand. He needs his eyes to be open. He needs the light to shine on him about the truth of who Jesus is and how Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. And so we see that, and so again, he honors Jesus, rabbi, right, teacher. Right? That's a very high compliment that he is calling Jesus rabbi. We know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So it's a significant statement of faith. Yet Jesus answers him, right? He makes things difficult for Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? It's personal. I say this to you. I mean, he's speaking generally, unless one is born again, but clearly it's aimed at Nicodemus, right? You must be born again, which he says um, uh, later, although it's a plural you when he says it. So he's speaking to Nicodemus, but he's speaking of many who must be born again. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I don't think that Nicodemus is, is thinking, oh, Jesus is being literal, you know, and so I'm confused, Right, probably, you know, what's happening is that Nicodemus probably, you know, in light of, you know, Proverbs is sort of answer a fool according to his folly. Maybe he's sort of answering like, okay, you're going to say something ridiculous that I must be born again, so I'm going to respond with something ridiculous like, how does this work? You know, he's kind of, you know, saying, look, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I also wonder what's happening there 
is that Nicodemus is basically sort of coming back to, are you saying I must do something? Again, I'm a ruler of the Jewish people. I'm a Pharisee. I've lived an entire life in service to God. I am devout, right? I mean, you know, probably Nicodemus knows the scriptures, right? The, what we would call the Old Testament, what he would just call the scriptures. He knows them in depth. And so perhaps behind his question, right, are you saying, how can I be born when I'm old? He's basically saying, I have done everything that God requires of me to do. How can you possibly say that I must be born again? Right? It's, it maybe he's feeling a little defensive, right? That's crazy. That's ridiculous that you would think there's more that I need to do. And so Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, there are a lot of different interpretations of that. If you study sort of how people have understood that passage and different people have interpreted it, some see that Jesus is saying, unless you're born of water, water representing physical birth, the breaking of water that a woman experiences when she gives birth. So he's saying, unless you have a physical birth, a water birth, in a sense, and a spirit birth, um, you are not born again. But others have actually wondered, does that tie into the water of baptism practiced by John? Right? John's baptism has been talked about before this in the, in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist's baptism has been spoken about. It's a baptism of repentance. Right? Many in Israel have gone out to be baptized by John. And perhaps Jesus is saying, unless you are, you know, unless you are born again of water, um, and so repent, you know, as John has called you to do, and then receive the Spirit, which is the source of new life, you cannot be born again. You need both. You need repentance and receiving of the Spirit. But others have actually understood this to be speaking of Christian baptism, right? That Jesus basically is looking forward to the initiation um, uh, sacrament of baptism, which in the book of Acts and Paul's letters is often connected to the work of the Spirit, right? They, they go together often. And that Jesus' words are, again, sort of a foreshadowing of baptism, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, right? That's how new life comes, how you receive new life. Interestingly, many of the early church fathers understood baptism to be talked about here. Many of the reformers actually read baptism to be spoken about here. All right, it's beyond my sermon to get into various arguments above that or beyond that. The key thing we can say as we read this today is Jesus is making clear the work of the Spirit is key to new life. Right? You must receive the work of the Spirit. Right? Only the Spirit can bring new life. And born again can also be translated born from above, right? It's sometimes it's translated in different ways, the way you use the word that's translated for again. And so this is a birth that comes from above. It's a birth that you can't force, right? It's not something you can do to be born again. It's something you receive. It's something that's given to you. And so this comes out even more then, where if you jump down a few verses, where Jesus in verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The word for wind is the same word for spirit um, in, the, in the Greek and actually in the Hebrew as well. So clearly he's talking about the spirit here. There's sort of a double meaning, right? Just as the wind goes wherever it wishes, so the spirit goes wherever he wishes. I believe there's an affirmation there. The spirit is God. The spirit is a person. The spirit is not this impersonal force that you can control, that you can sort of do something to make the spirit act in a certain way. But the spirit is a sovereign God. He goes wherever he goes, right? And so it is with those born of the Spirit. They must receive the work of the Spirit. It's God's work. And so we can see right there, if we stop for a second, we can say, yes, right? The Trinity is the good news. The doctrine of the Trinity is personal because we affirm that the Spirit 
is a person. And that's a really key thing that I think people get tripped up on. And it's hard not to use sort of language, right, of, of the Spirit, of sort of, you know, the Spirit's at work. And, it, and sometimes people use that in a way that feels more like there's some sort of force at work here, and maybe I can manipulate this force, and I want more of the Spirit, so can I kind of, you know, grab the Spirit? Uh, and when we affirm the Trinity, we're affirming the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is God. And we receive from the Spirit. We welcome the work of the Spirit. We cry out into the Spirit of God. But the Spirit is the sovereign God, and He is at work, and it's only through His work that we can be born again. It's only through receiving from Him that we receive new life. And so, all right, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? All right, he's trying to figure this out. I, 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 tell me more, right? Maybe Jesus' answer seems a, a little harsh, right? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? I believe he's basically saying what we talked about last week, what I talked about last week, is you can experience the work of the Spirit, right? but the Spirit-inspired scriptures back up what I'm saying. So I think he's basically saying, look, you're a teacher of Israel. You should see this is in God's Word. What I'm telling you is not something new. This is what's been taught. Right? Think about Ezekiel 36, a, a passage we read actually at our Easter vigil just not too long ago. But the Lord says to his people, right, through his prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, right, birth by water, and you shall be clean, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Right, so the Spirit of God had inspired, right, the prophet to say, right, the Lord will pour out water and cleansing upon us and will give us new life. And then that's followed, right, um, after um, that promise, is the vision of the dry bones, again, which we look at um, in our vigil service, um, this amazing vision that um, Ezekiel the prophet is given, where he sees this army um, being built up by the Lord, right? The, the people being raised up, the bones being given life, and the breath of God, which again, breath is the same word as spirit, the breath of God being breathed into those bones and them giving life. At the end of that vision of the dry bones, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you. And so Jesus, I believe, is saying, it's in the scriptures. That's only through the spirit of God that you are given new life, that you must be born again. This is the work of the spirit, right? But perhaps also what Nicodemus is asking there is, well, what do I do then? Right? If the spirit of God brings new life, how do I receive this new life then? What do I do? Right? And salvation comes from the work of the spirit, but salvation comes from the work of the son. Again, this is where the Trinity is personal, right? We need the Spirit of God to give us new life. We need the Son to save us. And so now Jesus begins to answer um, the, the question um, that Nicodemus um, had asked earlier, right? You're from God. It seems that you're from God. Is that right? And basically, Jesus is giving the answer now, yes, that is right, right? That he comes from above. He says, truly, truly, I speak to you. We speak of what we know. Oh, well, we'll jump down. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus may still be figuring out that when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself. We understand that. Um, Our sense is that that Nicodemus began to understand that more and more um, as he continued to follow the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus is affirming there, I have come from God. Right? He's not directly saying, I am God, although John has affirmed that at the very beginning of his gospel, right? In John 1, where he says, Jesus, you know, speaking of Jesus as the word of God, the word was with God, and the word was God. And Jesus is affirming that in his own words. Right? I have come from heaven, right? The son of man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So once again, Jesus is referencing Scripture here. Right? He's appealing to what Nicodemus understands. Right? You, you know the story of the serpent in the wilderness, and that is true of the Son of Man. So the story of the serpent in the wilderness, perhaps you remember that. It's kind of a strange moment, one of many strange moments when the Israelites have been set free from slavery in Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness, right? They were on their way to the promised land, but they had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And at one point, once again, um, they were complaining about God. They were rebelling against Moses, um, uh, their leader, and again, believing that God would never bring them into the promised land. And God, in answer to the rebellion, sends fiery serpents among them. Begin to bite the people. Many of the people get sick. Some die. They realize, right, that God is judging them for the rebellion. They cry out to God for his mercy and for his healing. And God directs Moses, strange moment, to create this bronze snake and to put it on a pole and and, uh, set it up so that whoever looks at the bronze snake will be healed from the snake bites. Now, again, kind of a crazy moment. Like, if, if God wanted to heal them, why didn't he just heal them, right? If they were repenting of their sin and their rebellion, why make the bronze snake, right? There's probably lots of reasons. But one is, right, there's a response of faith that's needed. They've repented, right? They realize what we did is wrong. But now they need to respond in faith and look upon the snake. And we see one of the reasons, right, is it's a foreshadowing. It's pointing forward to Christ's death on the cross, when Jesus speaks of himself being lifted up, and we see this throughout the Gospel of John, he's speaking of his death. So he's saying, right, just as people could look at that bronze snake and be healed, so those who look to the cross, who look to my death, right, in faith, will be healed, will be given eternal life, right? And whoever believes in him, very clearly, verse 15, may have eternal life. So the Spirit brings salvation, but now Jesus is saying the Son brings salvation, Those who look upon the Son, who look upon the Son of Man, will be healed and will receive eternal life. Again, once again, it's personal, right? It's very personal, right? The the Son came so we may have eternal life and gives his life for ours. We are called to look to him, to have that moment of faith, to believe in him. And then we have uh, verse 16, right? And so now we have the Father, right? So we've heard about the Spirit. We've heard about the work of the Son for God so loved the world. It doesn't say God the Father, but again, clearly speaking specifically, God the Father, because he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well-known verse. There's a reason this verse is quoted. There's a reason this verse is beloved. Because again, we get the heart of the gospel, of the good news, that our God loves the world, and that he loves the people of this world, that he gave his only son. And that if we respond in belief to the work of the Son, to the person of the Son, we will not perish but have eternal life. Right? So there's, again, reason people put this verse on signs, right, and and write it out. But think about how if we don't embrace and acknowledge the truth of the Trinity, how we miss out, actually, and could even misunderstand this encapsulation of the gospel. Right? Core to understanding John 3.16 is the truth of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have saved us, right? That God saves us. Right? Because if we read this again apart from the truth of the Trinity, we can say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, we could ask, well, who's the Son? Right? So I thought God and God alone saved us. But if the Son was necessary to save us and the Son is not God, then that means God needed assistance 
basically in saving us. Right? That there was someone else who plays a role in salvation that we have to believe in. Right? And matter of fact, if you say that the Son is not fully God, then we can say, well, was God cruel in sending the Son to die? I've heard some people say, well, you know, the doctrine of the cross is, is divine child abuse, right? which is a horrible thing to say, but if you don't believe in the Trinity, you would believe that. Right? You would believe, well, who's this poor Son that was sent by God? But when we affirm God the Son is fully God, he is the sovereign God, he came willingly in obedience to the Father, but joyfully in obedience to the Father because the Father and the Son are one. They are in perfect partnership, in joyful, perfect relationship. Right? And so, yes, God the Father in his love sends the Son. God the Son in his love obeys the Father and comes for us. And it is only God who saves us, right? It's not God and someone else. It is God and God alone who saves us. God the Father saves us. God the Son saves us. And apart from the work of the Spirit and the reality of the work of the Spirit, we can read John 3.16 and we can say, oh, that's great, but that sounds kind of distant. That sounds kind of remote. Okay, a long time ago, God sent his Son. His Son died for us. I think sometimes people think, well, eternal life, that's something I guess I, I'm, I'm sort of like a promise, like sort of a stamp, and eventually I'll receive eternal life someday when I die. But when we understand that the Spirit is at work, the Spirit is God, then we understand, oh, eternal life begins now. Because I've received the Spirit. I've received the very person of God indwelling me and empowering me. And so this is a historical fact, but it's a reality right now because the Spirit of God is alive and, and at work in me. Right? I know the Son. I know the Father. And I know the Spirit. So my, one of my kids was watching a, a TV show. One of my sons was watching a TV show uh, this week. And I walked in and I'd already, I'm seeing the show um, and it was a very um, tense moment, a moment where I should have just been quiet and not said anything. But I could not help myself uh, because there was a guy on the screen. I said, hey, you see that actor? I went to college with that guy. So we were in a play together. He had the lead. I had a super small part. But still, right, that was my closeness to fame. Now, why did I interrupt, you know, my son watching this show at a tense moment um, to say something to him that really he could have cared less, Right. Because it's exciting when you know someone, right? It's like, I know that person, right? They're famous, and I know them. And my hope is when you hear the doctrine of the Trinity, when you hear it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you say, I know him. I know the Father. I know the Son. I know the Spirit. Yes, that is a very important teaching of the Christian church, but that's an important teaching for my life. Because I know God. Right? I can know him. He has saved me. Let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Jesus, we thank you for coming to save us, Spirit of God. We thank you that in you we are born again. Lord, I pray that each one here would know the gift of new life that comes from you and would receive that gift. That they would know the new birth, Lord, that we cannot force but that we can receive in you. And I pray that we would grow in our awe and our love for you, God. And we do ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.